Pastor Janelle's story got me thinking about uh, my own experience with plants. Uh, if you've been to my office, you'll see there is uh, one plant. There used to be two. Uh, I had a palm tree and a cactus. Uh, and I could not keep a palm tree alive, which I've heard is a fairly easy plant to be alive. Uh, and my cactus at times seems fairly dead. Uh, but it hasn't fallen all the way over. Parts have fallen off on occasion. So uh, moral of the story is if you go away for a vacation, don't leave me to trust your plants because they won't uh, make it through. We are in the last of our short three-week series looking at Bible, weird Bible stories. Uh, and this is one series uh, in the sermon, or sermon in the series, that I actually wanted to skip. Uh, I did think about a few times. I thought, maybe I just won't do this one. I'll actually do another one. I had a lot of other ones that I could have done, and I thought, I really don't like this one. And so I fluctuated back and forth. And even this week, when I sat down to start writing, I'd already done days of research, and I sat down to start writing, I thought, it's just not good. I'll just do a different one. I'll just do an easier one. I'll just, I'll just do one that makes more sense. Not that any of the last two sermons were necessarily easy to write, but they were definitely not as difficult in understanding the passage as this. But then I ended up recognizing that the reason, or the, the, precisely the reason that because I was so tempted to skip, because I was so tempted to not do this one, was the reason that I actually had to do it. If only even just for me, I had to do it because I was so tempted to just gloss over it. William Barclay is a, a great Bible commentator, and he actually said this about the section we're going to look at today. He said, there can be no doubt about this. This, without exception, is the most difficult story in the gospel narrative, he says this is the most difficult story to understand. Now, if you've been to my library, I have about uh, 10 shelves worth on my one bookshelf of commentary. So I went to about 15 or 20 commentaries on this verse, and they all pretty well agreed just on that point, that this one was difficult to understand. And that was the only part where they agreed. And so let's start by reading this difficult, weird Bible story. And so I'm going to read it from actually the Matthew version. It'll be up on here, but there are two versions. So I'm going to read about a story about Jesus and a fig tree. Now early in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. This is Jesus we're talking about. And now after noticing a fig tree by the road, he went to it, but he found nothing on it except leaves. And so he said to it, never again will there be fruit from you. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed, saying, How did the fig tree wither so quickly? And Jesus answered them, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only will you do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be lifted up and throw yourself into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask for in prayer, if you believe, you will receive. Now, there are two accounts of the story, like I said. This is the Matthew one, and this is Matthew 21, verses 18 to 22 is what I read there. And there is another account. As with multiple Bible stories, when we have four Gospels, sometimes they appear in a couple of them. The other account comes from Mark, and Mark tells it just a little bit different. Most of the details are the same, but there's a couple of differences. Essentially, Mark says Jesus went to the fig tree because he was hungry, and he found no fruit on the fig tree. We agree with Matthew there, and he cursed it. But here Mark records his first difference. He says, Mark specifically says, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves on it, for it was not the season for figs. Right? So Mark says it wasn't even the season for figs at all. There was no reason to expect figs on it because it wasn't fig season. 
And then the Mark story carries on. In the Mark story, what actually happens next is Jesus and his friends, they, they're traveling from Bethany to Jerusalem. And so they just keep traveling, and they head into Jerusalem at this point. And in Jerusalem, this is where we have this amazing story that you're probably familiar with, where Jesus cleanses the temple. This is where Jesus walks into the temple, and he, and he just goes like nuts, essentially. He flips tables, and he yells at people, and he, and he kicks them out of the table, and says, awesome, or kicks them out of the temple. And it's this awesome experience where we kind of truly see some, some anger out of Jesus, some holy and righteous anger. He drives people out of this temple, and he says, you've made my father's house a den of thieves or a den of robbers. And then it says that him and his disciples leave the city again, and in the Pharisees, they want to assassinate him now. They figure out, how can we assassinate this guy? And so this is, in the Mark story, we have this little transmission or this little spot where we, we see a bit of an insert. And so right after the temple cleansing, Mark goes on and it says the next morning they're headed on the way back. And they pass by that same fig tree. And so it says basically in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered what happened and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And so that's what we have there. And so we have a close account. They're almost the same, just a little bit of differences. And so what do we do with this very uncomfortable and weird Bible story? What do we do with this difficult story, the most difficult gospel story, according to William Barclay? Now, some people do what I was tempted to do and just gloss over it or ignore it and just say, well, that's too weird. We'll do a different one, right? So they just skip over it. Some commentators actually do this. There's a few commentaries that I went to that just skip right over it. They read this section and they go, and so this is what Jesus says about prayer. And they deal with the last two verses at the end of it. And they say, you know, prayer is powerful and, you know, this is not, um, you know, uh, ask for it and you'll get it type of prayer, but this is about faith. And they just move on. They don't deal with the fig tree at all. And some pastors and preachers definitely do this. I was very tempted to do this myself. Some people will read this and immediately what they want to do is they want to zero in just on the temple cleansing part. And they'll want to talk about what the temple cleansing means for how a church should operate or how a church should function or things that you can and can't do in a church. Or like I said, someone will look at prayer and they want to discuss what happens there and what are we supposed to do and how do we apply this prayer verse in our lives. But the interesting part is that Jesus, when he says about prayer, is he's kind of ignoring the question. They say, how did the fig tree do this? And Jesus says, well, prayer, and if you pray, this is what will happen. He doesn't actually answer, why did the fig tree curse or why did the fig tree wither like this Jesus or why did you why did you curse this fig tree in front of us he doesn't really explain why he did what he did he just kind of gives a bit of an answer about prayer and so some people want to go well that's the important part but when you skip over what happened to the fig tree what Jesus did to the fig tree you you don't you don't really do justice to the whole story here you ignore a whole big part of the story and so what do we do what do we say about what happened to the fig tree what Jesus did to an innocent fig tree we're going to break it down and we're going to talk about it. Now, like I said, the commentaries were all over. And so this is kind of, a, kind of a good out because I can say, well, if you don't agree, that's okay because not even the commentators agree. And they're all the experts with the doctorates and the PhDs. So if they can't agree, it's okay for us to disagree a little bit here. No one can really say for sure this is what they 100%. There's no debate. This is what it means. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at three possible ways of reading this. What are three ways that you could read it and discuss what each of those means and how we could impact it? And these are three ways that I pulled out of different commentaries. Now, the first point or the first way of reading it is it happened. The story happened. Jesus was hangry, right? Jesus was just a hangry dude that morning. I mean, it actually says that. It says Jesus was hungry in the morning. It says he's hungry. So the first option is we just read it that and say Jesus was hangry and he got mad at the tree because he hadn't had breakfast yet. 
I mean, it happens. We get grumpy when we are hungry. You've seen those Snickers commercials, right? If you've ever seen them, there's those Snicker commercials where it's this guy or this girl and they're yelling and screaming at everyone. And somebody says, hey, dude, you're not the same when you're hungry. Have a Snickers, right? And they give them a Snickers and the person calms down and sometimes they turn into like a little old lady or a nice gentle person or something, right? All of a sudden the hunger is gone and they're, they're back to being a gentle person. Hangry is a thing. If you've ever had kids or you've been around kids, you know uh, sometimes when they're grumpy, it is just purely because they are hungry. Or if you've ever been around me, when I've had to skip a meal or two meals and work through it, you'll experience what it means to be around someone who's hangry, right? I'm sure you've experienced it. And I mean, to some sense, we could say, well, this could be true because Jesus was fully human, right? He was fully human. And so fully human, being hungry, he might just get angry. Only the problem with that is it just seems so out of character the way that he reacts with his hangry, right? The way that he reacts out of what happens. I mean, if we look at another time where Jesus would surely have been hangry, he fasted for 40 days, right? He fasted for 40 days, and he was still pretty calm in his responses to the tempter or to Satan, right? He didn't snap on him and be like, you big idiot or anything like that. He's pretty calm. He's a pretty calm guy generally. We see him in some pretty heated situations. One time he's literally chased out of his town, and it says he walked through the crowd. It didn't say like he, you know, karate kicked his way through. He just, he walked through the crowd. And so we can sense that Jesus has some good control over some of his anger, right? We probably get it in the next bit where Jesus snaps in the temple, where it says Jesus is angry in the temple. Like, that makes sense. It makes sense that Jesus would be very angry at that point because it says that the people who are supposed to basically be in charge of the temple have turned it into a den of thieves. They've made his house or his father's house into a place of robbers. So Jesus getting angry in the temple and flipping some tables and driving people out, that makes sense. I can understand that part. But it makes no sense to me that Jesus gets as angry as he does at a fig tree for not having figs when Mark says it wasn't even the, the, the season for figs. And so he curses this tree. He literally kills a tree. And that just seems so out of character for Jesus, right? It seems fairly self-serving. I mean, he never uses miracles for his own gain or his own self-gain in the rest of the gospel accounts. But it seems like here, if this is our interpretation, it seems like he has. It seems like Jesus has used a miracle here for his own gain. Right? Like in the desert during his temptation, he didn't turn the rocks into bread, even though he certainly could have. He didn't do that. He didn't call down angels to fight his accusers or his arresters when he was arrested, but he certainly could have. But here, if we read it this way, he curses and destroys a fig tree for not having figs when it wasn't fig season. And it kind of makes me a little bit uncomfortable to read it like that. It makes you a little bit uncomfortable to read a story about Jesus being so mad at a tree for simply being a tree and doing its tree thing. If we read it this way, his actions just seem so contrary to his loving nature, to his compassionate character. The Jesus that gets mad at a fig tree for having no figs and using his miraculous power to curse it and kill it is not the same Jesus, or it appears it's not the same Jesus that we see humbly going with those who are going to arrest him. It's not the same Jesus who we see humbly submitting and dying upon a tree who never struck out once while he was being attacked. And he didn't even attempt to explain away his actions. Right? It just doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the biblical Jesus that we see. This idea of him just getting angry and snapping because he's hungry. And so option one, interpreting it that he was just hungry and so he got angry and kind of had a little temp or a little temper tantrum there, that doesn't really fit with what we see the rest of Jesus. So I don't know if option one of reading it that way is the best option. So we'll go to option two, a different way of reading it. 
Now, option two says that despite option first one saying it did happen, option one says, nope, this story never happened. This didn't happen. The biblical writers got confused. The writers who took this down were confused. And there were a few commentaries that actually took this route. They say this story did not happen. Or if it did, it did not happen anywhere like the way we have it. What they say is that Matthew and Mark, who are the two people who have this story, they got confused. They get all the details wrong because they were confused about what happened. Now, there are two ways of saying that it didn't happen. There are two ways of saying, well, here's why we can say it didn't happen. The first is you can look at Luke. And in Luke 13, 6 to 9, there is another story about a fig tree, but it is drastically different. And so I'm going to read it for you. It's completely different. It says, Jesus, this is Jesus, and he's telling a parable. It says, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit, and there is none. I'm going to cut it down. Why should it use up the space in my ground? And he answered him, and he said, well, sir, let it alone this year. I'll dig around it and put some manure on it. And then if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And so what people say is, well, because Luke's account is so different than Matthew and Mark's, and Luke was a great researcher, that Matthew and Mark originally meant to tell this story. Originally, they meant to tell this story. They meant to record a parable that Jesus had said. But the writers somehow got confused, and the copiers, you know, when we copy translation to translation, somehow it just kind of got confused, and the story evolved into what we have here. So the option two says that. They said that that just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. They were trying to tell the Luke story, but it didn't work out. The second way that they use the excuse that it didn't happen, and the writers are confused, is that they say, well, maybe what happened was that while the disciples and Jesus were on their way to, to uh, Jerusalem from Bethany, they came upon a dead fig tree. And when they came upon this dead fig tree, the disciples reminded Jesus of the story earlier in Luke that he told his disciples. And so it reminded him of that parable, and so he reiterated parts of it here. And so that's what they say. Well, they say, well, it didn't really happen. Jesus was remembering the Luke story when he saw a, a dead fig tree on the way to Jerusalem. And things got lost in translation, and that's how we ended up with this. It's sort of like that game of telephone. If you've ever played telephone in youth group or anywhere else, right? Like, I whisper a story to Murray, and Murray whispers it to Bob, and Bob to Jane, and Jane to Paul, and we just go along and we whisper it. And eventually, you know, when it gets over to here to John, the story that John tells me is not even close to the same story that we started with over here. And so that's what they kind of say. They say it kind of didn't happen, and it, you know, it just kind of got lost in translation. But the problem that I see with that approach is that it is pretty pick and choosy about what parts of the Bible we take at face value. It's pretty pick and choosy and say, well, I'll take this, but I won't take that, right? Like, look, for example, the last two weeks of things we've talked about. We'd look at a talking donkey and an axe that swims, and we go, no, 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 that happened. Yeah, the writers wrote down what happened. They recorded it. That's exactly what happened. It's just a miracle, right? That's what happens. We have a miraculous God. But then this week, we say, well, no, no, the writers, the writers got confused. They didn't, this didn't actually happen like this. Jesus didn't really do this miraculous thing. Uh, you know, there was some reason why the writers got confused. It seems pretty unfair to take that approach, to say, yes, these are good when it paints Jesus in a favorable light, uh, but no, 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 they were confused when it might say something different about him. Augustine talked about this. He once said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and you reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel that you believe in. It's yourself. So I think it's pretty unfair to say that the writers got all the details right for the Acts stories and the other miracle stories, but somehow because we don't like the way it paints Jesus that we just say, well, no, they got the story wrong and we can wash it away then. We can dismiss it. 
So these are the first two options. If these two first options are no good, what do we do then? I think there's a third option. And I think this third option, when I read it, it does justice to both Jesus' character and it does justice to how he's portrayed in the rest of Scripture, but also to how the Scripture is written and we have it here. And the way that we do that is option number three says this story happened and it was a physical parable or prophetic realism. Now, this is an option that some of the major commentaries, or the most popular ones, hinted at. This is likely the, the, the biggest possibility. This is likely what it is, uh, or this is probably what it means, even if they weren't willing to say, this is 100% how we should apply and interpret this. So the major commentaries sort of said, we think it's this. We're fairly sure. Not 100, though. And this, op- or this option actually comes from the Old Testament. It all comes from the Old Testament era of prophets. Essentially what prophetic realism is, or a physical parable, is it's reminiscent of what the the commentators look at to the symbolic actions of the Old Testament prophets. We'll look at an example in Isaiah 23 to 4. God is talking to Isaiah, and he tells him essentially, he says, go walk naked and barefoot as this example. And so Isaiah goes around and walks naked and barefoot. And then God says, as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. So this idea is that Isaiah was was this uh, physical parable of what was to come, or this prophetic realism of what was to come. It's a physical example of the message that God had for his people, right? And so how do we use this idea of prophetic realism or physical parable for us in this story, the story about a fig tree. Well, we look at it and we basically say, Jesus is hungry, right? Jesus is hungry. Maybe he hasn't had breakfast yet. And so he goes to a fig tree as he's walking along and he sees leaves on it. But when he sees no fruit on this tree, he takes this as an opportunity to teach his disciples something. And we see Jesus doing all this all the time. Something comes up and he takes the opportunity to teach, right? He uses so many opportunities as great teaching opportunities. And so he does that here. He says, well, there's no fruit I'm going to teach my disciples something here. But to understand how this lesson works, we have to first understand fig trees. Now, this was some fun research. And so I got to go back and look at what fig trees are. I've never had a fig in my life. Uh, I don't enjoy fig newtons. They're weird. Uh, And so perhaps you do, but I'm sorry. So, and I was like, oh, I'm going to look at the fig trees. And so uh, actually since doing that research, all of my Google ads are to buy figs and where I can get figs. So I did a lot of research into fig trees this week, and I found out there are essentially two types of fig tree. There's two different types. The first type of fig tree produces fruit like a regular apple tree or a pear tree, where where once a year it produces fruit for the harvest. But there's another type, and this type actually produces fruit twice a year. And so in this second type, what actually happens is that the old growth from last year, the old growth shoots that were there last year, they've harvested the figs off them. Those old shoots in the spring, they will produce a very small fruit called the breba fruit, or it's basically the beginnings of a fruit. So they they have this very small fruit on the old growth from last year, and it's called the breba fruit. It's smaller, it's greener, it is much more bitter, and it actually is much more of a delicacy to eat. And so this breba fruit would come up just before the leaves come up. And so if there, if there are leaves on a fig tree early in the spring, it means that there is likely some breba fruit on there, or you might have just missed it, but likely it's on there. And so shortly after the leaves, about midsummer, the breba fruit would be gone, and then in the late summer or early fall, the fig fruit would come up. And so the real fruit, the, the proper fig fruit of the fig tree would come up. 
Now at this time, near Bethany, the Mount of Olives area, almost all the fig trees would have certainly been the second type of fig tree, where it produces fruit twice a year. So almost certainly it would have been the fig tree type where there would have been a brave of fruit before the leaves and then the actual fruit. And so what does this mean for us and Jesus discussing uh, and teaching? So knowing what we know about fig trees and knowing in this period that it was likely the second type, then we would know that if Jesus is walking in April along the street and he sees a fig tree with leaves on it, then there should be little braba fruit on there. So it should be on there, the delicate, uh, very bitter fruit, but it should be there. And if there was no braba fruit, what it means is that there will be no fig fruit later. So if there's no little braba fruits on the tree, but there are leaves, it means there will be no fig fruit later. So there's not going to be any fruit on this tree. And so Jesus uses this example, seeing no fruit and knowing no fruit is to come. He uses an example to teach us what we call promise without fulfillment or profession without reality, or if we want to bring it in 2021, religion without relationship. The leaves on a fig tree are a promise of fruit, but there is no fruit on that tree, which means there's no fruit to come. So the promise of fruit was never going to be fulfilled. So Jesus, as God and judge, pronounces his judgment on the tree as a lesson. Because it bore no fruit currently, and it would bear no fruit in the future, he places his judgment on it, and the tree withers up and dies. When we read the Mark account, we can understand it even more because of Mark's insert about the temple story. We get a better understanding because after Jesus curses the tree, we see the very next thing he does, he goes and he cleanses the temple. Right? So he goes and he cleans the temple of all the leaves that were bearing no fruit. The early church understood this, actually. The early church read this account, and they immediately understood this as Jesus' judgment towards Jerusalem. And they understood it as applying because the second temple was taken down in 70 AD. So they looked at that and saw the temple came down, and they thought, well, that was Jesus prophesying that the temple was going to be taken down because there were leaves but no fruit. So they read this account and immediately applied it to the temple destruction. They immediately understood it as this sort of prophetic realism or a physical or lived parable about what was going to happen to Jerusalem, the temple. And this understanding or this reading, I think, can apply to us today. Jesus saw a tree that should have had fruit on it because it had leaves, but it was just leaves. It was all decoration with no substance. There was no fruit, and he saw that there was no fruit to come. The leaves mean nothing if there is no fruit. I think Jesus was talking about the temple and destruction and Jerusalem there, but I also think he was talking about us. Leaves mean nothing if there is no fruit. It's not enough for us to have pretty leaves decorated on the outside of our lives. We need the substance on the inside, the fruit on the inside. We can't just put on a big external show that says to everyone, look how much I love God, look how much I want to serve God, when inside there's no real fruit in our lives. Inside it's all just leaves, all just decorations. We have to have fruit that goes along with the leaves. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 23, 27. He was speaking to the religious leaders, and he has a, a much more vivid example of leaves without fruit. He says, you're like manicured grave plots. The grass is clipped, and the flowers are bright, but six feet down, it is all rotting bones and worm-eaten flesh. People look at you, and they think you are saints, but beneath the skin, you are total frauds. Leaves on the outside, but no fruit. When we claim to be followers of Jesus, but we don't show love and we don't show grace and we don't show compassion or mercy or peace or joy or hope, we have leaves on the outside, but no fruit. 
we are a fig tree with nothing but leaves. And we see how Jesus judged a fig tree without leaves. Jesus said at one point, he said in John, how will people know you're my disciples? He didn't say, well, you'll have great leaves, but he says you'll know by my fruit. He says, they'll know you're my disciples because you love one another. He'll know you're my disciples by your love, is what he says. What's our fruit that we should be known then? Well, we can say, obviously, love. Obviously, love. We should be known by our love. We'll be known by our real love towards others, our real love towards God. We'll be known by a real displayed love. But Paul says even more. Paul says we should be known by our love. Of course, yes, that's obvious. Jesus said that. But Paul says there are other fruits that you should bear. There are other things. Paul says in Galatians 5.22, it should be love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He said these are the fruits that you should bear. This is the fruit that we should be known by. This is the fruit that Jesus is looking for in our lives. When all we have are the leaves but no fruit, we've displayed promise without fulfillment, profession without reality. We've displayed our religion without relationship. See, Jesus doesn't care how many boards you're on or whether you tithe 15, 20, 30, 40% or whether your church attendance track record is at 100%. He doesn't care about those things. He's looking for a real relationship with you that bears fruit. Those things are outward leaves and they mean nothing if we don't bear fruit. A real relationship with Jesus will spill over and bear loads of fruit in our lives. When you spend time with Jesus, when you commune with him regularly, the things that are his characteristics, the love, the patience, the joy, the gentleness, all those things will spill over into your life and spill out of your life. The people around you will see those things. They'll see your fruit. This is the fruit that Jesus was looking for. This is the fruit that we should bear in our lives. So do you bear love? Do you display joy and peace? Do you show patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness? Are you humble and faithful? Are those things evident in your life? Is that fruit there in your life? Because Jesus is looking for trees that bear fruit. Not just trees with pretty leaves, but no substance. The tree that Jesus came across with no fruit withered up and died. Because Jesus is looking for fruit. Is that something to think about in our lives today? Let's pray. Lord, thank you, for, thank you for the confusing and the weird Bible stories, Lord. Thank you that these are all part of your word, and God, that we can learn everything from various parts of your word. And so, God, open our eyes. Help us to read scripture afresh anew. Help us to look at places that we've merely glossed over. Help us to uncover the beauty and the truth that is there in your word. Lord, thank you for this example today. Father, would you teach us to bear fruit? Would you show us how to bear fruit in our lives? Would, be, would we be more than just leaves with no fruit, but would we have fruit that spills over? Would everyone we come across see the fruit of our relationship with you? We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name.